All the kids, all the kids, come on up front. Come on up, sit up here for our children's message. Adults, you can listen in too if you want. Come on up, find a spot. Hey, good, good to see everyone. Keep coming, come on up, there's more room. We'll make room for you. All right, find a spot to sit. Good. All right, good to see everyone this morning. Now, this morning, we're going to be continuing to preach in the book of Colossians, right? We've been talking about that. And this morning, we'll read that we are to do away with sin in our lives. We're to get rid of it, and we're to live lives of godliness. But you know what? That's not something we can do in our own strength, on our own. We need help with that, okay? Okay, so we need help with that. If we want to live to honor God in these ways, we're going to need something besides just ourselves to help us with that. And so thankfully, yeah, mom and dad can be helpful, but Colossians also tells us something that we need. It says that we need to set our minds on Jesus. We need his help with these things. Now, if we're going to set our minds on Jesus, does that mean we have to like, cut open our head and take out our brain and find, no, that'd be, that'd be bad. Don't do that, right? That's not what it means. To set our minds on Jesus means that you are thinking about him all the time. You're thinking about him. It means you're reading his word, the Bible, and having that in your mind. It means you're obeying him. It means you're singing to him and about him. It means you're worshiping him. So our minds are set on Jesus. Now, we could set our minds on a lot of different things, couldn't we? We could set our minds on games. Or we could set our minds on food and what we're going to eat. We could set our minds on friends and the people we're with. Or we could set our minds on Paw Patrol. Right? Or Dalmatians. We could set our minds on Dalmatians. But... Here's the thing, more than anything else, we need to set our minds on Jesus because he is great and wonderful. So we need him more than anything else. Since Jesus is so great and so wonderful, he is far above any other person. He's far above anything we could imagine. Therefore, we look to him and he fills us with the power that we need to live for God's glory in these things. And so if you want to get rid of the sin in your life, you need to set your mind on Jesus. If you want to live a more godly life, you need to set your mind on Jesus. And if you want to grow in faith, you need to set your mind on Jesus. So since by faith we are united with Jesus Christ, we want to keep our attention on Him. We want to keep our focus on Him. And when we do, it will lead to good spiritual growth and maturity in our life. And that's what we want, so that we can live to honor God. So Pastor Jeremy's going to come and preach to us from Colossians. So you keep listening and set your minds on Jesus. Thanks for coming up. You can go back and have a seat. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. Uh, we are in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 to 17, which is on page 981. If you need a Bible, there are some in front of you, in the seat underneath the seat in front of you. Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 to 17, again, page 981. 
Colossians 3 is rather convicting. Um, it's it's an incredible chapter, but it can be awful for us. And it's because it talks a lot about sin. It's really just filled with commands. Um, and uh, you can read, then realize I am often even pathetically less than what it states there. But there's good hope here, and it's Christ. And he tells us here to set our minds. And so I want to urge you to leave here with this one exhortation, to do the hard work of being sober-minded and controlling what you think about. That's what this is going on here. It's hard work. I want you to learn to set your mind on Christ in order to have hope as we go through this. Let me read uh, verses 1 to 17. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put away them all, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thank give thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of Father, you giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, you'd, uh, your word is right and it's pure, it is holy, and all your commands are perfect. We ask now that you would teach us to walk in obedience to them, setting our minds on your Son who is above where we are with him. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I said Colossians 3 is almost all commands. These commands are from God, they're good and wise, and he actually requires them of us. We are actually to read this and obey it. These commands are not suggestions, they're not up to us to pick and choose which ones we will or won't obey. They are commands from God on high, and we're to subject ourselves to them simply because God has given them. So that's what's going on here, that's what this is for. We are to put our sin to death and to put on righteousness. What I'd like to do is actually start with more verses 5 to 17 and then close with 1 to 4. I want to talk about the realities of the Christian life in these verses. Uh, We see here sin 
in two categories, or two categories of, of sin in verses 5 through 10 or so. You have a category of sexual sin in verse 5, or to put it to death. And then you have a category of sins of the mouth in verses 8 and 9. So two different areas of sin that Paul is urging, commanding believers to put to death or to put off. Uh, one thing that we have to say about this is that it is a part of a believer's life to sin. Uh, sometimes we forget this. Even though we have been crucified with Christ, even though we are not to walk in it, Paul has to say these things because the reality is before Christ's second coming, you and I will continue to struggle with temptation and sin. Uh, I want to say that not to comfort you into sin, to provide a measure of comfort for you in the Christian life. We have to have a right view, a biblical view of ourselves. And so when you sin, you shouldn't take comfort from the fact, well, I'm just human. And yet the reality is you should take comfort from the fact that you're going to continue to sin. That's just the reality. Um, and so, so you will be like that. And then, too, this is helpful for your relationships, isn't it? What can you expect from your spouse who's a Christian? Sin. You can expect good things, righteousness as well. But your spouse is often, sometimes, going to sin against you. It's going to hurt. It's going to be hard. But what do you expect? You're married to somebody like you. And so let that help you define your relationships. And yet, uh, not taking comfort in this. We're to put these things to death. Notice that language. Put them to death. You're to not let them live. You are to be the hangsman for your sin. You're to be the executioner for your sin. You aren't to make a deal with it. So long as it stays small and hidden, it can stay. You are to root it out and execute it. To not allow it to be in your life anymore. One way to think about this is this is defining what repentance is. This is what repentance looks like. Repentance looks like putting our sin to death, putting it off, not allowing it to be in our lives anymore. And the second half of repentance then is what we see in the second half of this. We're to put on something else. We are to put off these sins of the flesh, of lust and of our mouth, and to put on righteousness and holiness in regards to other. We're to put on compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and love and so forth. So we put one thing off, we put another thing on, and that's what repentance is in the Bible. If you ever wondered the definition of repentance, that's it. This also then defines what Christian maturity is. <clears throat> Christian maturity is sometimes thought to be knowing a whole bunch about the Bible. Or maybe you define maturity by, I've been a Christian for a long time, therefore I must be mature. Or maybe you define Christian maturity by your activities. I do all this kind of stuff for Jesus. And all those things are good and right and a part of the Christian definition of maturity. But the ultimate uh, biblical definition of maturity is hating your sin and putting it to death and growing in righteousness. So for instance, if we would take these sexual sins, you're, you can't define yourself yet as a mature Christian if you're continually walking in sexual sin. If you're looking at pornography regularly, you're not a mature Christian yet. It must be put to death. Or if you're somebody who lies or gossips a bunch and isn't putting that sin to death, that, that is betraying Christian maturity in your life. Likewise, we have to put on these good things. We have to put on kindness. If you're an 
unkind person. No matter how many biblical verses you know, and you're unkind, it betrays kind of maturity in your life. So this is the definition of maturity here in Scripture. So, uh, again, we have two categories, if you can, of sin. We have sexual sin and sins of the mouth. And one thing that we all know is we all know sexual sins are gross. Every Christian knows that. They're yucky. Um, you're embarrassed by them. They're shameful. And, and rightfully so, because they are. But we often don't think of sins of the mouth in the same way. We are grossed out by sexual sin, but sins of our mouth, like anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk and lying, are seen as more acceptable. They're the good kinds of sin. They're the kind of sins that you'll commit on Sunday morning. They're not that bad, we think. And yet here, Paul lumps them together, and they're both to be dealt with in the same way. So we ought to be careful of giving a pass to one kind of sin or another. We, we don't want to have any. In fact, often in relationships, especially in the Christian church or in any kind of organization you're part of, it's sins of the mouth that do the most damage. It's our gossip. It's our talking poorly about somebody else when they're not present and so forth. And so we ought to hate that kind of sin just as much. So we are to put off one thing and put on another. And this is a definition of the Christian life. Paul sums it up at the end in verse 17 by saying, whatever you do, do all in the name of Jesus. Now, one way to think about that verse is to say, whatever you're doing as a Christian, you are doing in the name of Jesus. This is an inescapable reality. You'll see in verse 10, uh, 9 and 10, that we aren't to lie because our old self has been put off with its practices. We have put on our new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That sends you back to Genesis 1, doesn't it? You and I were created in God's image. And yet because of sin, that image has been marred. And so now in redemption through Christ, we have put it back on. And it is being renewed. It is being built back up into the image that was lost in the fall. And so whatever you do as a Christian, you are doing as an image bearer of Christ. You are bearing image to Christ wherever you are, whatever you're doing. And the exhortation is to do that in a way that is actually consistent with who Christ is, with who you are in Christ. So whatever you do, in word or in deed, we want to do in such a way that is consistent with what we confess with our mouth, that Jesus is Lord. So if you want to summarize all of this, all of these commands, all of these categories of things that we're to put off, to crucify, and that we're put on, one of the ways to think about it is we just want to become more consistent as Christians, don't we? We want to live more consistently with who we are in Jesus. And so that final verse then sums it all up. Now you'll notice in all of these commands, there isn't an aspect of your life that Jesus isn't Lord over. That he is Lord over every area. He is Lord over what you're to put off and what you're to put on. He is Lord over your sex life, over your passions, over your desires, over what comes out of your mouth. 
He's Lord over how long you should bear with somebody else. He's Lord over how much you should forgive somebody else. He's Lord over in these verses what rules your heart. He's, ro- he's Lord over what defines sin and what doesn't. He is Lord over everything. So what we want to do as believers is submit to that lordship in everything. We want to yield to him in everything. We actually want our lives to be lived in such a way that he gets glory from our lives. That's a staggering thought, isn't it? Your life is tied to the glory of Jesus Christ. Isn't that something? What a privilege. How you live either brings or detracts from the glory of Jesus Christ. And so we as believers want to do this, don't you? You should have inside of you a compelling unction to want to improve in your living for Jesus Christ so that he gets glory. And you want to do that, right? You wish you could put to death some of these sins. You wish you could put on these righteous behaviors. So why don't we? Why aren't you making progress in the faith like you would like? Why do you continue to do the same things over and over and over and over again? Where are we going wrong? Well, there is a connection between the first four verses and what comes after it that we often neglect. We kind of just skip over the first four verses, like I did, and go right to the commands. And as I said, these commands aren't leave it or take it or leave it. There are actually things that we're to obey. You and I are to give heed to these and obey them. But if we skip over from the verse four verses, we miss all of the power and the motivation to obey what comes after. Verse five begins with, or uh, in the Greek it does, therefore. So whatever comes after verse five is built on the foundation of what comes before it. You can only grow in what comes after it if you get solid and straight what comes before it. So that one word indicates that if you want to live in putting to death your sin and putting off the sins of your mouth and putting on these righteous behaviors, then you've got to get right the first four verses. And the first four verses are in some just set your mind on Jesus. Think on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. You won't be able to do what comes after first four if you neglect the first four verses. You might remember back to last week, in chapter 2, Paul is correcting Christians who are trying to live righteously, but going about it in a way that is useless. Look at chapter 2, verse 23. He says, they have indeed the appearance of wisdom and promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So what the error in chapter 2 is trying to accomplish the very same thing that we see here in chapter 3. They're trying to stop indulging their flesh. We'd like to do that. I want to stop indulging my flesh. But in chapter 2, the error was they're going about it only in earthly ways in ways that make sense to the common person, in fleshly ways. They're trying to combat their lust or their use of pornography or their sexual morality or their lying or their gossip by what they do and don't eat. 
or what holidays they do or don't participate in. Now, why do we do that? Why do we try to go after spiritual things in very earthly ways? Well, we're earthly. We're physical, bones and bodies and eyes. And so there are good, right, physical, earthly things that you can do to help you combat sin. But it's also because we like control, don't we? We're okay with Jesus telling us what to do as long as we get to define how we go about it. We still want to maintain some control of lordship over our lives. So Jesus tells us to um, quit lying. All right, Jesus, as long as I get to define how I go about stopping it and what constitutes a lie. But, of course, it doesn't work. Paul says it's of no value. After that, then, chapter 3 is showing us what is of value in stopping the indulgence of our flesh. That's how Paul's setting this up. He shows us in chapter 2, we have the right desire. We want to stop indulging our flesh, but we often go about it in earthly ways, ways that are powerless, have no value. And so now in chapter 3, he's going to show you the, what is the power, what is the full value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And it's these first four verses. You have to know who you are. You have to know the position you occupy in Christ. Where are you right now? And one answer is you're at Pine Grove Community Church at, I always forget our new address, 1360 Stephen Street. Right. That's one answer, of course, it's true. The other answer is you're seated at the right hand of God in heaven in Christ. You have been raised with Christ. Verse 1. Verse 3. You have died with Christ. Verse 4. When Christ appears, you will appear with him in glory. And the exhortation of these verses is to set your mind on these things. This is one of the neglected spiritual disciplines in the Bible. We all know that we should read our Bibles regularly. We all know that we should attend church regularly. We all know that we should gather with the saints, maybe in a small group regularly. We, we, we should sing songs. So, so there are these spiritual disciplines. But one spiritual discipline we, we often forget about is controlling our minds, disciplining what we think about, disciplining what we set our mind and heart affection on. How many of you have thoughts running through your brain consistently? Right? Sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night and your brain is going and you can't fall asleep. Or during the day, you're, you're just thinking. You're, you have these thought patterns going on in your brain. And oftentimes, they're not very helpful. They're anxious over what you got to do. They're fretting over something somebody said about you and how you wish you would have said this when they said it. You're criticizing yourself. You're... It's, it's not good. We call it stinking thinking. Right? We're, it's not good, the play running in our head. And we just listen to it. We're just passive. We don't feel like there's anything we can do to control it. We just sit back and take it. Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor in England in the uh, mid-1900s, had a phrase. He said, you need to stop listening to yourself and start preaching to yourself. You need to stop listening to yourself and start preaching to yourself. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Stop passively listening to the record running in your head and set your mind on Jesus. 
get hold of your thinking and become more sober-minded and start controlling your thinking to think about who Christ is and what Christ has done and what that means for who you are. That's the exhortation here. And Paul is connecting that with putting your sin to death and growing in righteousness. Keeping your finger here in Colossians, I want you to turn over with me to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. I want to show you a connection here in the Bible with this kind of thing and growing in holiness and purity. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. I, I could read a larger section here, but I just, want to, I just want to show you this principle and hopefully leave you with it. Uh, so 1 John chapter 3, towards the back of the New Testament. So here again, in in verse 2 of chapter 3 of 1 John, we have this statement of who we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. So who are you in Christ? And you're, you're a beloved child of God. And what we will be has not yet appeared. So we live in this tension, in this paradox of the Christianity. We are God's children right now, and yet the full expression of that is not yet here. But we know that when he appears, when Christ appears, we shall become like him because we shall see him as is. So we are God's children right now. What we will be has not yet appeared. When Christ appeared, we will be that fully. Isn't that wonderful? So this desire you have for putting your sin to death and growing in righteousness, it will finally and fully be accomplished one day. Amen. I mean, it's going to be really sweet. No more battling this devil living inside of you. No more battling your fallen flesh. No more battling these lustful thoughts. No more battling these temptations to lie. It's going to be done. What we will be will be full when Christ comes back. In verse 3, look at this. All right, so we're thinking about who we are now. We're God's children now. We're thinking about what we will be when Christ comes back. And then he says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who is right now setting your affections, your mind and heart, hope on that, on who you are in Christ now and what you'll be when Christ comes back. Everyone who does puts your hope, your mind, your heart in that does what? What is happening to you is you're setting your mind on what Christ has done and what he's going to do. What happens if you put your hope there? What happens? You purify yourself. You see that? So, if you are not growing in purity, what's one of the biblical reasons why not? Because you're not setting your hope on Christ. Because you're not thinking on Christ. You're not disciplining your heart and mind to think on Jesus Christ. You see the connection? If you want to grow in purity here and now, if you want to put your awful, disgusting, sexual sin to death now. If you want to stop the sins of your mouth now, you set your hope in Jesus now. You think on who he is and what he's done, both in the past and what he promised to do in the future, and that leads to present purity. So that's what Paul is urging here. Let let me take it one step further. Colossians was written in response not to just an error in how we go about killing our sin, but if you look back in chapter 1, beginning at verse 15, an error that was taught about who Jesus is. 
So there were some infiltrating the church who were teaching a less than biblical Jesus. They were teaching Christ, but a pocket-sized Christ. A bobblehead on the dash of your car kind of Jesus. A little Jesus. Um, A puny Jesus. A Jesus who is my boyfriend kind of Jesus. It's not somebody you got to take real serious, and it's not somebody who's any help to you in a fight. But he's nice, and he's got long hair, and if you're having a bad day, he'll carry you on a beach somewhere. Right? He looks good on a poster behind your door. And so they were preaching Christ, but a much smaller, less than biblical version of him. And so Paul is in verses 15 to 23 of chapter 1, exalting the full orb of the biblical Christ. He is the preeminent. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And Jesus is spectacular. He is God made flesh, creator of all things, ruler of all things. And then it goes on to say, he will reconcile all things in heaven and earth through his blood. Jesus in his death will accomplish the full salvation of the entire world that no human being or no army can accomplish with all the human might in the world. He does something in his weakest moment in death that nobody who's ever attempted could try with all of the power of man. This is Jesus. He is not playing. He is not weak. He is not small. He's not your buddy. He's Lord. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. His feet are on fire. His eyes burn. He tramples his enemies and their blood splatters on his robe. He's a king. This is what Paul is preaching in Colossians. Why is he preaching that? Because when you set your mind on that Jesus, you kill sin. If you set your mind on a weak little buddy Jesus, you just keep going in your sin because he's got nothing for you. You see what I mean? If your theology of Jesus is weak, your battle with sin will be futile. But if your theology of Jesus is biblical and big and strong, you'll begin to pummel your sin. So the problem isn't that you're just not thinking on Jesus. The Jesus you're thinking on ain't Jesus. It's just you. <laughs> You're just reducing Jesus down to you, and he's okay with your sin. Is the Bible and is the Jesus in the Bible okay with your sin? Is he a help to it? Can he defeat it? Can the one who created all things and is redeeming all things, can he put to death your lust? Yeah. So set your mind on him. Don't be okay with your sin, because he isn't. And you're going to stand before him one day. And even more so, you've already been crucified and raised and you're with him right now. Why would you continue to sin if that's your position? This is what's going on here. Now what I want to do is end with singing. And I want to get at the men again. This whole entire text is moving somewhere. It's building to something. It's a crescendo. And the crescendo is verses 16 and 17, especially 16 and singing. 
right? Put sin to death, but we just don't leave it there. Put on righteousness, but we just don't leave it there. Sing. This is the inevitable result of all of this talk of Jesus and putting sin to death and putting on righteousness is you want to let the word of Christ dwell in your richly. How? Why do you come to church? You come to church to teach and admonish one another. How? Sing. This is, this is where this entire section is moving. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thank, give, thankfulness in your hearts to God. So, you've heard this before. If you're new here, you'll hear it again if you come back, if I haven't convinced you that this isn't the place for you yet. Um, I really hope it is for you. We want you here. We, we just don't want to be the kind of church that's playing with our Christianity. Right? We don't want to be the kind that dresses up nice or dresses down nice and comes and sits and hobnobs with a few Christians and goes on and continue to live your life like you've always lived it. That's not what we're here for. We're here to actually become more like Christ. And those who want that learn how to sing. You might be kind of tone deaf you might be embarrassed. You might have grown up your entire life thinking men don't sing. Godly men don't sing. Do you realize that almost all of the good Christian music that we sing were written by men who sing? Why? Because they see Christ and they know they've been raised with him and they are serious about their sin. It is. It should seem very strange to you, verse 16, doesn't it? Why at the end of all this talk does he talk about singing? Doesn't that seem strange to you? So I want, I want to encourage you to sing with some zeal. I want to encourage you as a man to raise your hands. Forget about what everybody else is thinking. Let's be a man and sing with some zeal. That's where Paul goes with this text. But Paul begins this section with Christ, and he ends this section by encouraging you to, urging you to do whatever you do for Jesus Christ. And that includes the closing song that we're about to sing. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to put this into practice? We don't want to be hearers of your word and not doers. And so, God, give us grace to set our minds on your Son as he is revealed in Scripture. With all of his greatness, all of his awesome glory, all of his power and might, all of his terror, and all of his sweetness and kindness and nearness and forgiveness, that we might put our sin to death and put on righteousness. And so, God, help us to live more consistently as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. The charge is this. I urge you to ask God in prayer and then make a commitment this week to think on Christ, to think on all that he is in Scripture. Fight to live more holy and to put your sin to death by God's grace by thinking on who Christ is and what he's done for you. May the God our Father make the peace of his Son to rule in our hearts. And may the Spirit of the living God make his word to dwell in us richly. And lead us to fill our hearts and homes with singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thanksgiving to God in the coming week. And may God's grace uh, give us the power to do whatever we do, be it in deed or in word, in the name of our only and loving Savior, Jesus Christ, such that all glory and honor and thanks would be to God our Father, both now and forever. And amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord, and I love you.